0: Please pray with me. Fathers, we turn our attention to your word. We recognize that you are a good and gracious God. That you would reveal yourself to us in clear ways that cause us to rejoice. We give you thanks and praise and honor and glory for the work of your son Jesus. And as we see how that work is received in very common ways in this book of 1 Thessalonians, we pray that it would cause us to well up with gratitude and it would compel us to continue on down the path that you have set us, becoming more into his likeness. So we pray these things, asking for your help, in Jesus' name, amen. I want to ask you to grab a Bible and open with me to the book of First Thessalonians. You can turn to First Thessalonians chapter 1, it's found on page 986 of the Pew Bible, and as you're turning... I imagine that for every person in this room, if you look over the course of your life, you could identify some of the big days, some of the defining days, some of the days where you look at your life and you say, that day was a marker point for me. You might even be thinking of some of them right now. Sadly, for some of us, some of those marker days are negative in their experience. Maybe we lose a spouse or a parent, and that is a marker point day for our life. For many of us, we have a number of positive days in our life that function as a marker point. The day that you get married, or the day that you walk into your first home that you purchased, The day that you graduate from college or get your first job or the day that a child is born. Big days. And of course, if you're here today and you're a Christian, then we certainly can't forget the most important day of your life, which is the day that you were converted. The day that you came to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. The day where you saw God clearly for who he was and saw yourself in light of him. And all of eternity opened up before you as you put your faith in his son Jesus. Big days, banner days, days that we celebrate, days that we focus on, days that we attribute significance to as we look over the course of your life. And then there are the ordinary days. The ordinary days. And while there may be a dozen or two dozen big days throughout the whole course of your life, there are literally thousands of ordinary days. And when you begin to weigh the scale of the ordinary days to the big days, you start to wonder, which ones are the days that really set the course of my life? that really set the trajectory from where I'm going. Is it the 12, or 20, or 24 big days, or is it the thousands of ordinary days? You know, the ordinary days. The ones where you go to work, where you take your kids to school, you go to your small group, where you clean your house. The ordinary days. Where you go to the sporting event, or you work out, or you read your Bible in the quiet of the morning, or you watch your favorite show late at night. The ordinary days. The ones where you might quarrel with your husband or your wife. But you kiss and make up. Or the days where you pray, (laughs) or you go to the doctor, or you get the oil changed in the car. Just an ordinary day. And if you live to be 78 years old, you could have over 28,000 ordinary days in your life. Today we start a new series in the book of 1 Thessalonians that we are calling The Ordinary Days. And the reason why we're calling it that is because the book of 1 Thessalonians is unique in the New Testament in that it does not have one or two or even three sort of predominant themes that the Apostle Paul is trying to communicate to the church. In fact, the more you read this letter, the more you see that what Paul is doing is that he is thanking God for the work that he's done among these people, and then he is encouraging them in the ordinary things, the things that are common to Christian experience, the things that most often happen during the ordinary days, the 28,000 ordinary days that you're going to have over the course of your life. And the more and more you read this letter, and the more and more you consider the nature of the common things or the ordinary days, the more you begin to appreciate the dynamics of the spiritual life in the normal life, and you're encouraged to see the profound change that God enacts in your presence. And so let's begin the letter and look at 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. Are you there? Yes? Yes. Starting at verse 1. It says, Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians, in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace. We give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers. Remembering before our God and Father your work of faith. And labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. For we know, brothers, loved by God, that he's chosen you. Because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. You know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake. And you became imitators of us and of the Lord. For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception that we had among you. And how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. And to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. And so in this first chapter we see that some of the most important experiences of the Christian life are often marked by something that is common to all Christians, or what we might even say is ordinary. An ordinary reception of the gospel among Christians. And so what does that ordinary reception of the gospel look like? Well, Paul phrases this first chapter in such a way that the tone is overwhelming thanksgiving for these ordinary things. He's recounting to this group of people what's happened in their lives by the work of God. It's a really good reminder in some ways. It's a good reminder that even when we can't often see the change that God is enacting in us because it feels normal, and if you build a habit and a pattern of your life that is good and faithful and sound, the change that God enacts in you might actually feel so ordinary that you might not even recognize it, when somebody takes a step back and looks at your life and sees the forest from the trees, they look at the work of God and they're overwhelmed by how significant it is. The ordinary begins to look profound. And so peppered throughout this first chapter, we see five common features of receiving the gospel, or five ordinary things. They're common to all Christians, and they serve as not only a foundation of the letter, but an encouragement to you today for your own walk of faith. Let's look at them together. The first one is found in verse 5. An ordinary reception of the gospel begins as the gospel comes. It says, Brothers, we know, loved by God, that he's chosen you. Verse 5, Because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. The word comes in power and in Holy Spirit and in Conviction. What does Paul mean by this? Well, he's describing where the practical realities of gospel speech meet the spiritual realities within the mind and the heart of the person who is receiving it. And it's common for all Christians to experience this. And they happen in such close proximity to each other that. They can be easily viewed as one thing. Paul finds it helpful to sort of divide it into four. And the first one is that the gospel comes in the form of words. Now, some of you have heard or even find inspiring an often misquoted saying by St. Francis of Assisi. Have you heard this before? Preach the gospel at all times, and if necessary, use words. It's a pretty common quote of St. Francis, and there's a couple of problems with it. The first one is is that Francis never actually said it. (laughs) It's a misquotation of something else he said, but the second is that as much as you can appreciate the sentiment of it, that the life of a Christian is supposed to accurately reflect the things that he or she believes in, that at the end of the day, when it all boils down to it, the gospel still comes to us through words. And without those words, there is not the gospel. And this gospel is good news. Now, there's good news, and then there's really good news. Or there is what is presented to you as good news, but then there's really good news. Let's contrast. For example, when your four year old comes to you and says, Daddy, I drew you a picture today. Good news. And you say, that's great, honey. Where is it? It's on the wall in my bedroom. This is not good news. Or when you come home from work one day and your wife says, honey, I got good news. And you say, what's that? I've become a vegan. This is not good news. (laughs) Thankfully, I haven't experienced that one. Or I I think of the farmer who comes to the, banker, and he says, I have bad news and I have good news. And the banker says to him, well, why don't you tell me the bad news first? And he says, well, you know, that loan that you gave me, that loan that you gave me uh, for the mortgage, I can't pay it. And he says, really? Okay, well, um, and the crop loan that you gave me, I, I can't pay that either. He says, okay. And he says, well, what about uh, the equipment loan, I have bad news. I can't pay that one either. And so silence comes over the room and the farmer says, you're gonna have to take everything back. I'm gonna have to give you the farm. I'm gonna have to give you the equipment. I have to give you everything and you're gonna have to salvage it for what you can. And the banker sits there stunned and after a couple of moments, he says, well, what's the good news? And the farmer says, well, the good news is I'm gonna continue to bank with you. <laughs> This is not good news. But when the gospel comes, it comes in good news. And it comes in good news in the form of words. Now, I'm sure that uh, everyone in the room knows and understands that uh, over the last couple weeks, the great evangelist Billy Graham passed away at the age of 99 years old. We could probably tell countless stories of the effect that Billy Graham has had on the lives so even the people in this room, but just by a show of hands, how many of you have ever um, listened to a Billy Graham sermon, read a Billy Graham book, or been somehow affected by the life and ministry of Billy Graham? How many of you? Why don't you raise your hands? That's why, so similar, very similar in the first service, hundreds of people in Old North today affected by this ministry. That is why Billy Graham was called in so many ways America's pastor, because his influence was that wide and profound. My first uh, time I saw Billy Graham in person was when I was, in, when I was 17 years old. I was in high school. And the Billy Graham crusade was coming to Minneapolis, Minnesota. And I had the opportunity to go. I was already a Christian at this time. But I was still very curious to he- see and to hear what was going to happen. Because the idea that some thousands of people would come to listen to Billy Graham preach for three or four days was a curious thing. And so as I sat there for multiple nights in the Minneapolis Metrodome and thousands of people came in to listen to Billy Graham, one overwhelming impression stuck with me. And that was what he said was really simple in its nature. That the good news that he proclaimed... Didn't have a lot of fanfare attached to it. He wasn't—he was an eloquent speaker, but he wasn't sort of particularly um, uh, passionate. Nor was there was a lot, lot of um, fanfare or showmanship around the message itself. But what he said, at its core, was a simple message. And the more that you read about Billy Graham now that he passed away, and the Articles about him and the magazine cover stories and the books, there's that resounding theme that this message of good news is actually very simple. The message, the description that God desires a relationship with us, that our sin makes us worthy of judgment, but that God loves us so much and He desires to forgive us. And so He sent His Son Jesus. To die a sinner's death even though he lived a perfect life. To pay the penalty on our behalf on the cross. That he would die and be buried and rise again. So that anyone who put their faith in him would be forgiven. And receive the gifts of God for eternity. A simple message that God loves you and can forgive you through faith. And the Holy Spirit uses that simple message again and again and again. And the power that Paul speaks about or that we even witnessed in the life of the preaching of Billy Graham is not due to compelling speech and it's not due to the use of force. But the power itself is found in the conviction That happens internally, where the ordinary, external, simple message meets a spiritual, internal conviction that can take the most prideful men and women, or the most self-sufficient people on the planet, or in a different vein, the very worst of sinners, and cause their hearts to bow low before Him as they are convicted of their sin and they see their need for a Savior. And they put their faith in Jesus. And God saves them. God accomplishes the extraordinary through the ordinary reception of the gospel. God accomplishes the extraordinary through what is seemingly a very ordinary reception of this simple message. And the second way we see that here is found in verse 6 that these people receive the word, and they receive it with much joy. Look at verse 6. He says, and you became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you received the word in much affliction with joy of the Holy Spirit. Now, we talked just a moment ago about how the gospel itself is good news and how there's a difference between things that are presented to you as good news when versus truly good news. And what Paul is referring to here and how this can come to be is that when the conviction of sin, when word and power and spirit and conviction are met with good news, the natural response is joy. In Acts chapter 2, we see in Peter's speech that he proclaims the gospel at the very founding of the church. And this is what it says. It says, now, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. It's another way to say they were full of conviction. And they said to Peter and to the rest of the apostles, brothers, what should we do? And Peter said to them, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. So those who received the word were baptized and there were added to their number about 3,000 souls that day. And just a couple of verses later, that 3,000 who received the word were described in two ways. They were filled with awe and they had glad and generous hearts. Their response was joy. Now, this is common to the Christian experience. This is ordinary for people who come to faith in Jesus. That when conviction meets good news, the result is joy. <laughs> and so, that's how, as I think about another passage in the Bible, 2 Corinthians chapter 1, Paul says, Blessed be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort who comforts us in all of our affliction so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. For as we share abundantly in Christ's suffering, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort too. When conviction meets good news, even if there's affliction in the circumstances, the results are still joy. And you can look at your life and you can look at the people that you know and you could probably see this to be true, maybe even in your own life, because this is ordinary. This is common for the Christian. I think of some of the people I have know who have been in great affliction and yet still displayed an abnormal sense of joy to the world, but an ordinary sense of joy for Christians. I think of my Muslim friend who was born and raised in Iran. And upon putting his faith in Jesus had great joy, even though it meant fleeing for his life. Or my friend from Eritrea, who had great joy upon putting his faith in Jesus, even though it meant that he would be pushed to the edge of his tribe, and as he began to teach others about Jesus, he would be branded by his government as a political dissident and have to flee the country. Or I can think of the people right here in this very church who receive joy as they receive the good news of Jesus. And yet at the same time there's great affliction that surrounds them. But this affliction does not hinder their joy. I think of the young man in our church who puts his faith in Christ. And because of this faith he has great joy. Even though it means his grandparents wouldn't let him in the home. Because they did not like the choices that he made. Or I can think of the man in our church who has great joy in Jesus, even though he comes out of a Jewish background, and his Jewish family would disown him as a result. His joy is still very real, even if there's hurt in the relationship. Because you know what? Joy, even in the midst of affliction, is normal for those who receive the word of Christ. It can be expected. It's part of the supernatural work of conversion that happens through an ordinary reception of the gospel. Because God accomplishes extraordinary things, and that type of joy is really extraordinary. And he accomplishes those extraordinary things through ordinary reception of the gospel. Let's look at the third way. In this text, he's outlining what is common experience for Christians as we see in this church. And he says in verse 9 that the third way that an ordinary reception of the gospel looks is that these people turn to God and they turn away from idols. Look at me at verse 8 and 9. He says, For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere so that we need not say anything. For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you and how you turned To God from idols to serve the living and true God. This is common for Christians. The action of verse 9 is sort of a twofold action, isn't it? It's turning to God and turning away from idols. That the second action is a necessary following of the first. These Christians did not just add. God or Jesus to the pantheon of gods that they had. They did not take Jesus and his teachings partially and continue to go on the path of life that they had already. There was a legitimate turning that took place. Turning to God, turning away from idols because to turn is the natural position of repentance. I wonder if you've completely turned. (laughs) Because so often we turn to God and that we're tempted to turn back, right? We're tempted to continue to integrate the things of our sin and our desires into a life of following God. But he says clearly, the idea of turning is obvious. Now, that idea of turning is applicable in all kinds of ways today, isn't it? Because I wonder... What were some of the ways that you had to turn, or some of the things you had to turn from as you turned to God? What was it for you? There are a lot of common ones today. These are some of them for me. <laughs> How about the pursuit of pleasure at all costs? Whether you call that an idol or a value or a way of life, you could call it probably any number of the three, but that is something that some of us have to turn from. Or... or um, the idea of self-determination or self-determinism or materialism or addiction to choice. These are all values, all ways of life, maybe even idols that we turn from as we turn to God. And here's one that you probably haven't thought about before, but one that's becoming ever more prevalent in our society. In his book entitled Love, A History, a Yale scholar named Simon May calls human love our new God in this culture. He writes a chapter called Love Plays God. And he writes, human love is now tasked with achieving what was once only divine love was thought to be capable of, to be our ultimate source of meaning and happiness. May contends that we've changed to the Bible's statement, at least functionally in our culture, from the idea that God is love, To love is God. And here are some of the core beliefs of this new religion of love. Belief number one, human love is the universal form of salvation available to us all. Number two, we don't need long and disciplined training to learn how to love because most of us can love spontaneously and without effort. Number three, human love is always benevolent and harmonious, a haven of peace. Number four, human love transports us beyond the messy imperfections of the everyday world into a superior state of purity and perfection. And number five, human love delivers us from all of life's losses and sufferings. May writes that these sorts of ideas saturate popular culture to its immense cost Human love has usurped a role that only God's love used to play. Now, that's a pretty keen insight into where our culture is at the moment. Because our culture promotes this sort of vague idea of human love being the end-all, be-all of our experience. Why don't we all hold hands and just love each other? But it doesn't take long to read the tenets or the rules of this type of religion of love where you realize it really just doesn't line up, does it? Because how many of you can say that you can love spontaneously without effort all the time? I know that I can't. Or how about that love is always benevolent and harmonious. It's always peaceful. But that's not how love really functions on the ground. Or how about the fact that love transforms transforms us or transports us beyond messy imperfections of life? Where has human love done that with any amount of consistency in your life? I know that it hasn't in mine. And these are the ideas of pop culture. These are even becoming the modern-day idols. For us. And here we see that part of the ordinary reception of the gospel common to the Christian is a turning away from idols and serving the one true God. He makes it a point to say that there's one true God. <laughs> and that this is not just a cognitive recognition or an intellectual assent, but rather, but rather it's a new way of life. It has action, it has values, it has a new master. And it's a normal part of receiving the gospel for Christians. Because everybody serves somebody. But when Jesus comes into your life, you begin to serve him. And so God accomplishes the extraordinary, through the ordinary, reception of the gospel. And the fourth way we see that here is he is thanking God for the fact that this group of people has had a growth in Christian character... And a gospel witness. Look at verse 3 with me. Verse 3 says that he's remembering before God and Father your work of faith, your labor of love, and your steadfastness of hope in the Lord Jesus Christ. Faith, hope, and love. Have you heard him expressed in that trio before? Faith, hope, and love is one of the predominant descriptions of the Christian life or the attributes of a Christian in the New Testament. And here, he describes the work of faith. The work of faith is simply that these people are working on behalf of the Lord, and they have faith in God that he will accomplish that work. That this is a labor of love, that in the midst of the labors of the gospel, that they love God and they love other people, and that's why they're doing it. And that there's a steadfastness of hope in the Lord Jesus. And that is to say that through all the ups and downs and the seasons of life, that they have a view on the horizon line of human history, that the Lord Jesus will actually return and consummate the kingdom that he started. And so we see that these attributes are compelling, that Christians are defined by them in so many ways. And throughout the New Testament, Colossians chapter 1, verses 3 to 5. Paul writes, We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love that you have for all the saints because of the hope that you have laid up in heaven. Of this you have heard before in the word of truth, the gospel. Or Galatians 5, 5 and 6. For through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly await for the hope of righteousness for in Christ Jesus neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything but only faith working through love or 1 Corinthians 13:13 13, 13. so now faith hope and love abide these 3 but the greatest of these is love i wonder if your character is marked by these things I wonder if the interactions of our church are marked by these things. These are the common and ordinary character traits of Christians. And we thank God for them. The second way we see that this ordinary reception of the gospel um, produces character change is in verses 8 through 10. And he says in verse 8, That the word of the Lord went forth from them in their region. He lists the towns. And that their faith has gone forth everywhere. That their faith has gone forth everywhere. That's a pretty bold claim. Simply put, this was an evangelistically driven church. This was a group of people who saw as they continued to grow in the Lord Jesus... The greatness of God and the need to continue to share the Lord Jesus. I wonder if someone looking at Old North would say that about our church. That our faith is going out throughout the region. Or the word of the Lord is going throughout the region. And that our faith is going out everywhere. Probably take a step back and say, organizationally, yeah, we do regional events. We intentionally engage the people of our community with the gospel. We support missionaries worldwide at a, at a percentage that's considered to be really generous among Protestant churches, high, way higher than the average. This is, these are good things. But more than that, we wonder, of course, when you take all the hundreds of lives individually that are here today, and you look at your life, and you say, is my life... Characterized by this sort of evangelistic zeal or urgency or endeavor, and you take the individual lives and you put them together to form one big collective life. What is the culture of our church? Would somebody say that about us? I hope so. Because part of the ordinary experience of Christians is to share the gospel. And I know we need to be ever more challenged in that, to keep sharing the good news of our Lord, to keep actively developing that sense of urgency for the lost, to pray for the opportunity to speak, and then to have courage to actually speak when the opportunity comes. Because when you do that, the seemingly ordinary engagements result in something extraordinary. When the gospel goes out through your conversation over coffee, through you inviting your neighbor over to church, Uh, your neighbor to church and then to your house for lunch on Easter Sunday or whether it's behind the pulpit week in and week out day in and day out the seemingly ordinary things God does something extraordinary He does something extraordinary through this ordinary reception of the gospel and we see that again and again in the lives of men and women and boys and girls and history tells the story Of that reality. The fifth way we see this ordinary reception of the gospel is found in verse 10. That these people are marked by waiting for the return of the son Jesus to deliver us from wrath. We won't comment on that today. We'll leave that for another day. We'll hear more about that as the book goes on. But you know you need to know that God accomplishes the extraordinary through the ordinary reception of the gospel. And in our time, there's a great, great emphasis on celebrity. There's a great emphasis on showmanship, on flash, on style. There's also a great and growing emphasis on Mystical spiritual experiences. We have a culture that's now turning back to spiritual desire. And so many people saying that the height of my spiritual experience is some mystical reality. And yet, we see here that there are seemingly ordinary ways that people become Christians and that they're common to all of humankind. What are the ordinary ways? The word comes in power and spirit and conviction. Number two, it's received with joy. Number three, that people turn away from idols and they turn to God. Number four, that they develop in Christian character and in gospel witness. And number five, that they wait for the return of the Lord Jesus. That's the Christian life. And we rejoice in God as we see it happening again and again. We only need to look back before some of the technology in the contemporary church to see that this is the ordinary way. Think of the early church father, Augustine of Hippo. After wrestling with the idea and the problem of evil, and did evil come from God, or how does a good God and evil exist? And struggling in anguish and prayer opens his Bible to Romans 13, 13, that says, Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies or drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy. Those were the very sins that defined his life. So he saw his need for a savior and he put his trust in Jesus. Or Billy Graham, who came to faith in Christ while attending a tent meeting and hearing the preaching of a man named Mordecai Ham as a young man. And he would later say, upon putting his faith in Christ, I didn't feel any special emotion. I just felt peace. Or Charles Spurgeon. Despite being raised in a Christian home, christened as an infant in a congregational church, continued to read his Bible and pray daily as a child, awoke one day in January of 1850, with a deep sense of need for deliverance from sin. And because of a snowstorm, the 15-year-old Charles Spurgeon was diverted down a side street looking for shelter. He tucked into the primitive Methodist chapel on Artillery Street. And an unknown substitute lay preacher stood up to give the message that day. And he read from the text Isaiah 45, which said, Look unto me, and be ye saved all the ends of the earth, for I am God, and there's no one else. And Spurgeon would later write, the preacher didn't have much to say, (laughs) thank God. That compelled him to keep on repeating his text. And there was nothing needed by me at any rate, except this text. But the same could be said of you. Ordinary people, ordinary reception of the gospel, Extraordinary things done by God. Joanne Brashin, or Kyle Vaclav or Sarah Drokin. Or Mindy Reekstad, or Jim Ramsey, or Nick Burkert. Or Nick's daughter, Lindsay Sprouse. Or Nick Gatsky, or Susan Withers, or Tony Steiner, or Craig Newbold. Or Brenda Gregory. Or you. Ordinary people. Ordinary reception of the gospel, an extraordinary God doing extraordinary things. Thanks be to God who accomplishes the extraordinary through a seemingly ordinary reception of this good news. Let's pray. Let's thank him. Let's stand to sing in just a moment as the worship team comes. Father in heaven, we give you honor and glory and praise that you do the impossible through seemingly ordinary things. And that you encourage us in it. That no one in the room who knows Jesus as Savior could say, wow, I wish my testimony was more flashy or interesting or worthy of a YouTube video. But that through the seemingly ordinary, you change our course for eternity. We love you. And we praise you now in Jesus' name. Amen.